Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Sometimes the answer to a really basic question helps frame a very complex market. And I want to bring in PIMCO's Tony Crescenzi and begin with your very basic question, Tony. And it goes as follows. Where will rates be in five years in, say, Europe, in the United States, in Japan? Walk us through your thinking. Well, uh, what I'm about to say, I've said for the last several years, but now we will extend the timeline out further. So let's go around the world. For the European Central Bank, which has a policy rate today of minus 0.4%, permitting, if you will, the German Bund to trade at minus a quarter point, the highest we expect it to put its policy rate at any time in the next five years is 0%. We would say the same about Japan, also around zero. They're both dealing with similar forces, uh, as is the United States. Demographics and productivity, uh, major forces in those. And for the United States, likely there'll be a recession at some point in the next five years. And when it occurs, uh, it's highly likely that U.S. market interest rates, treasury yields, will collapse towards zero percent just like in Germany and just like in Japan. They'll be a little bit higher, but they'll still be close to zero. Uh, and the reason is because of a commitment by the Fed to keeping rates low okay, in great. the next recession. I, they, they can commit all day. What does James Diamond or Brian Moynihan do with a 0.8% 10-year yield? Well, I mean, Farrell can't even run and show the real yield because there's no real yield. But what do serious bankers do? Forget about the economists. What does finance do? Well, we do? have some history on this and going back in, uh, 10 years ago, when U.S. interest rates were at zero, uh, the so-called NIM, net interest margin levels, which one can look at by going to the FDIC website. They have a a quarterly chart book. They don't change very much. They hover around three percentage points, and banks find ways to make money. And one way they did, they protected themselves this time around, is they kept a low so-called beta to the federal funds rate. What does that mean? When the Federal Reserve was raising its policy rate from zero to two and a half, Banks, as every depositor out there probably knows, did not raise the interest rate on their deposits. They're probably still earning zero or close to zero. And this has helped banks to maintain a healthy profit margin. So banks have ways to adapt. And finally, uh, they make money these days or fees, not necessarily simply the differences in interest rates. So, Tony, let's talk about the Fed's next move. It's a really interesting question that you've been exploring with the team over at PIMCO. It's not just the amount of ammunition the Federal Reserve has. It's about how quickly they can deploy it and how quickly they can get market rates down. Walk me through what yeah. you guys are talking about at the moment. So when we at uh, PIMCO's Secular Forum, an annual gathering we have to discern the three- to five-year outlook, uh, Janet Yellen was in attendance and Ben Bernanke. I was fortunate to sit next to the two of them as they talked in front of 200 of us. Uh, the sense the both of them have indicated uh, in market interest rates moved down more slowly than you might recall after the Fed lowered its policy rate to zero in 2008. Bernanke has noted that the 10-year, and one could see this on a chart, the two-year, the two-year Treasury note, uh, was hovering around 0.8% a couple of years after the Fed lowered its policy rate. Janet Yellen noted that the two-year didn't go below 0.5% until 2011. And think 2013, taper tantrum period, markets were expecting a 5% policy rate 
remove that from the equation, insert instead a view that the policy rate will stay low until the jobless rate falls back down to full employment of four, let's say, if, if, when, if a recession occurs, and investors will assign a 0% policy rate to a two-year note, a three-year note, four-year note, five-year note. And so, in other words, rates would collapse quickly towards zero in a recession where market participants, participants believe the policy rate will be at zero for some time. So what does that mean for well, the bond market this time around, Tony? It means, for for one, many investors probably this year with very lofty returns are thinking uh, uh, there isn't much left. But uh, let's not forget the importance of fixed income in a portfolio uh, in so-called positive convexity. In other words, what is it that will help you if there's a recession and your equity assets fall in price, your credit instruments fall in price due to widening credit spreads, treasuries would and bonds would, high quality bonds would. And so there's still a very uh, big benefit that can be had from this potential drop in rates to protect the other uh, components of an investment portfolio. What's critical, what's, sorry, I didn't have my blue light on, The, the convexity buttons over here. What's critical here, Tony, is right now we are seeing convexity, lower yields, and higher prices. How do people away from full faith and credit adapt to that? Well, they're having difficulty doing I'll so. Say, and I think that well, what, it probably conveys a signal about uh, the global economy that causes worry okay. amongst investors But what about, is, is there a trade bet going on where people in mortgage backs, et cetera, they're in there and yes. they've got to readjust fact, along um, the way? One could look at the Mortgage Bankers Association's weekly index released every Wednesday and note that there's been a surge recently in applications for people to refinance their mortgages and yeah, also exactly. for home purchases. Now, this, what does this mean for a bond investor and interest rates more broadly? It means uh, it, it compels investors to move into treasuries more. Why? Because if you own a mortgage security and then that, let's think of one homeowner, the homeowner pays off the mortgage. The next right. mortgage that you own will have a lower interest rate. In other, and in other words, I, I should have uh, first said, you're getting paid back sooner than you expected. When you own that individual's or household's mortgage, perhaps you thought it would take five years until And you do it in six months, like Pharaoh. Instead, it's faster. So the, the duration, the interest rate sensitivity in a fixed income portfolio automatically declines. And what does the fixed income investor do? Since he or she or it is judged against a certain index, called the bloomberg Barclays aggregate, they're forced forced. to to buy additional bonds, usually treasuries, to to hedge against that, to raise the duration levels. Why not just leave the duration level low? Because then the the portfolio manager risks lagging the performance of that uh, index. There's three people driving off the road in Pennsylvania right now after that discussion. John, that's like you've, the thing you've got in the, the overlooking the river you've refied on that what like three times in the last 18 months i wish <laughs> i mean i mean but seriously pharaoh's refining the manse and that moves the bond market because you got yes. to go out it, not as and much as paper. the old days um, because more mortgage securities about one and a half trillion of them are held by uh, entities that are not as interested in that transaction right. so the federal reserve is holding did, those securities before you go did you guys buy german paper was, was, I don't want to get the, into the Yes, dirty, the intermediate the, the part of the German curves. You bought negative yield one paper. One could say is attractive in the sense that there's still what bond investors call roll down. 
if a seven-year note, six-year note has a higher yield than a two-year note, and it does, and it's, it's low, but it's higher, the actual return in a year will be about 0.7% okay. positive return. Even if return. it's a negative yield, you're going to buy the seven-year paper. Because the price it. will rise as yields fall what over years' time. What do you do when that shell ages. game ends? What do you do when that shell game well, ends? Well, bond investors love steep yield curves because of the so-called roll-down feature. And right. Then, well, then it's we a should, drug. I get it. we shift our strategy to reduce duration levels. But right now, one shouldn't shy for one, one should stay in fixed income as a protection against hey, the other I components of the portfolio. But there's roll down that gives a positive benefit as a securities age. You're not here to see me. You don't give a damn about me. You're here for I the do, real Tom. yield this afternoon. Is, is Tony, that what that is? This is the tease John, for the show a little bit later. Invitation. Happy to join. Uh, Tony, we'd love to have you on the program too. Tony Crescenzi there of PIMCO. That was a what clinic, a folks. morning. Tom, we're staying, of course, on banks. We're also talking about Barclays and its investment banking operations. In Europe, it keeps outshining its peers. The real challenge lies in the U.S. The chief executive, Jess Daly, has been pushing for the company to take on the Wall Street giants. But how does Barclays actually stack up against them? Well, joining us now to discuss this, Jonathan Tynes from Bloomberg Intelligence, European Bank Senior Analyst. Jonathan has a report out today analyzing Barclays' CIB performance. On the other side, Jared Cassidy of RBC Capital Market. It's still with us to talk about the U.S. banks. Tom, I feel like it's a, it's a Bloomberg surveillance special. It's like Tom and I fighting about the biggest economy in the world. So thank you so much for, for sticking around. You're welcome. Uh, and, and welcome to the program. Is there any bank in Europe, Jonathan, that could actually take on the U.S. ones? Not in the business that the U.S. are big in, no. But, I mean, if you said to me, which are the two or three best banks in Europe, I mean, I'd point to a DMB. I'd point to a Lloyd's in the U.K., actually. If you want efficiency, capital efficiency, proper focus on costs, well-reserved, etc. But in terms of kind of a, a J.P. Morgan, have we got anything like that? Absolutely not. Okay, sh- should we? <clears throat> Um, no, it's not as straightforward because bear in mind that Europe is still 27 countries that um, have very, very different agenda. And, and Italy and Spain lending there, reserving there in the bad debt situation is very different from Germany, very different from um, further north countries, Belgium, etc. So I don't really see that we ever will have that. I want to set you guys up for the reality here, which is a transatlantic battle over the future of banking. Gerard Cassidy, how far out front are the American banks. Tom, I would say in the capital markets business, they are certainly the leading providers in that area. When you take a look at a Bank America, Merrill Lynch, a JP Morgan Chase, as well as Citigroup, there, as, and then you have the two investment banks, of course, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. All of those players are global players, and because of the downturn in 08, 09, they were able to get the capital infused into their banks faster than the European banks, and they've been able to take market share over the last 10 years. They are truly tough competitors for the other players over here. John Tice, I see Deutsche Bank today under a six handle, six euros down to five point whatever. It just goes on and on for the European banks. Which institutions in Europe will allow Europe to be more Anglo-American and compete well, I think the, the biggest issue you've got is rates. I mean, the U.S. has had a rate cycle that goes up. 
which helps um, and profitability improved. You look at Europe, I mean, we're now talking potentially if Veeman doesn't get in as the next uh, head of the ECB, um, rate cuts and we didn't ever go back up. So the interest income squeeze has really, really hurt um, European banks. You look at the US banks, yes, they've got big investment banks, but their other parts of their portfolio have performed really well. Whereas over here, the revenue attrition has gone on and on and on from the lending book, not just from losing market share. But Jared, how much of this is, is just the fact that actually the US, right, when you know, 08 started, just fixed the banks quickly. And in Europe, we've kind of been just dragging on and on and on. And these are mainly legacy issues that just haven't been dealt with. Francine, you put your finger right on the issue. And let's remember that the American banks didn't do this willingly. The regulators put the gun to their head, told them to raise capital at a time when it was very destructive to shareholders' equity. But they were forced to do it. And because they did it, you're absolutely right. The Americans were able to attack their problems right. more aggressively and quicker and turn themselves around much faster. Okay, you two, I want to jump in here. John Tice, let's open this up. The, the, the dream here is an American bank buys Deutsche Bank, an American bank buys Bank A, Bank B, or whatever. Why would the American banks want to combine with any kind of average or troubled European bank? There's absolutely no reason whatsoever. Thank because you. The, things that the, the, the American bank doesn't want the balance sheet. The American bank doesn't want a retail German mm. bank where the most you're going to make for the next 10 years is 6-7% ROE. So if you want the people, you take the people. Um, but back to the previous question, I think if you look at Barclays, I mean, Barclays doesn't have the bad debt problem that a lot of the European banks does, and it didn't get nationalised. It managed to use um, Q8 quite, um, Qatar quite cunningly. Um, so one question is, well, why are they still so much less profitable? And look at things like underwriting fee margins. Look at the size of the FIC business versus the amount of capital they've got to put there. The Americans have got a secret source mm. that um, right. Barclays is better than Europe, but it's still lagging. And now, folks, we go to where we must go. Gerard Cassidy is going to give us a bank in the middle of nowhere in America so John Tice can make some money next month. Gerard, what's the bank that's got a value and a catalyst right now? Tom, we were talking last night. I was in Paris. We were over Martinis, and KeyCorp is one of the best regional banks we have in the United States. But I know you and I like to talk about smaller banks. One of the banks that's done very well, in New Jersey, SB1, uh, Tony Lobazetta is the chairman and CEO there. It's, a, it's just over a billion in assets. It's a small business There you bank. go. And, and that's, those are the names that can do well along with the J.P. Morgans. Very good. John Tice taking notes there on small banks <laughs> across America. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Honored. We have a wonderful guest on a wonderful IPO story. It's what keeps the market going. Paul Sweeney? <laughs> yeah, talk about a wonderful IPO, Tom. Here's Beyond Meat. Uh, May 1st goes public at $25 a share. It's currently trading at $143 a share. It's got a market cap of $8.6 billion. Evaluation is you know, about 24, 25 times 2020 consensus uh, revenue. So just extraordinary. Um, most of the analysts that had been supporting the stock, obviously, given the valuation, have, have chosen to back off just recently. I think, believe one of the latest uh, is Alexia Howard, senior analyst at Bernstein, who covers uh, Beyond Meat and the, and the food business. Alexia, thanks so much for joining us. I know you recently downgraded the stock. What was your reasoning there? Uh, really just valuation. I think the, uh, the the main point was that it just seems overdone. Um, 
it's obviously had an incredibly rapid start out of the gate. Um, I think the long-term prognosis is is very, very good. Uh, everybody's pretty excited about all these plant-based burgers and plant-based sausages, and, and uh, the outlook for the market looks really, really solid. But the valuation just got very, very overstretched very, very quickly. How do you think investors are valuing this story? Again, by my math, it's about 25 times consensus revenues for 2020. That's just you don't even see internet stocks trade there. Uh, so what do you think is really, you know, supporting the valuation here? Um, well, it's got a pretty small float overall. Um, you know, I mean, you talk about the uh, the $8.6 billion overall enterprise value, um, but there's only a small piece of that that's publicly traded. And obviously, there's a lot of excitement. There's been a huge amount of news coverage over the last month because of the success of the IPO. Um, I do think that if you look at the, the total addressable market 10 years from now, it looks pretty interesting. Yeah. But the big question is, how much how much of the pie can they actually take when you've got people like, um, or companies like Nestle and uh, Tyson getting yeah, well, in the game? Alexia, yeah. that's the point. I mean, let's go Michael Porter on you. Exactly what are the barriers to entry of putting soy, what else, John Tucker? Soy, alfalfa... Uh, hey, peas. peas, whatever, in with your burger. Come on, Alexa. Everything what's, that's disgusting. What's, thank you. What's the barrier to entry here? Well, I, I really think that, I mean, it's very different from the plant-based beverage market where, frankly, I could throw, you know, a, a bunch of almonds into my Vitamix and, yeah, you, hey, presto, I've got almond milk. And that was why um, you have a huge amount of entry from private label and small yeah. brands because they were so easy to make. Uh, these plant-based uh, products are really technically very difficult to get okay. right. And I think that's the biggest barrier to entry. But then, of course, <clears throat> if you're in that game, you've really got to get right. ahead of the curve in terms of taste and texture and, and so on. One of the threats to society is they have to keep Alexia Howard and Sarah Senator at all times in different rooms. They're not allowed <laughs> to be together. There's so much food power there. What if you and Sarah Senator get together and Beyond Meat starts moving in McDonald's that Sarah follows? I mean, what's the impact of a single press release that Esterbrook wants to go beyond meat? Well, um, we put out, a, when we downgraded the stock, we looked at, at, at McDonald's because obviously even on the earnings call, people were asking about, you know, what what if you get the McDonald's contract for, for, for the U.S.? And, you know, you put the numbers together and yes, it, it could be another $170 million, which would be an 80% uplift to their current uh, sales um, guidance for this year of $210 million, you know, it, it, that's decent upside, uh, but it's not a done deal. Like, we have n neither neither McDonald's nor Beyond Meat has commented publicly on whether or not that's going to happen. Obviously, it was really good news that the uh, the breakfast sausage is now being rolled out at Tim Hortons in Canada. That's a pretty big contract, and there are other big contracts they can go out, go after uh, across, the, uh, across the country and even over, overseas. Um, but the McDonald's thing would be the big whale, and we don't know whether it's going to happen. So, Alexia, are we going to see a flood of kind of faux meat uh, companies following in the footsteps of Beyond Meat, given how successful the IPO was? It seems as though that probably will happen. Um, probably you're not going to get uh, a gazillion of them because obviously the research and development that it takes to actually make these products in a credible way is pretty expensive. But I do think that there's a lot of focus on the area. You've got a lot of sort of work uh, pipe, pipeline companies that are looking to get into the space. So uh, the competition is going to heat up over time. 
So what is the the market size of this business? Do we even know um, kind of how big this market can be? Well, obviously, it's it's early days yet, but if you assume that it, it follows the same path as the plant-based beverage market, and if you look at what almond milk uh, did to the plant-based beverage market, obviously, soy milk was kind of chugging away for, for a certain segment of the market for a long time, and then suddenly you had almond milk, and then you had hazelnut milk and oat milk and all these kind of things. That took, that's taken 15% of the fluid milk market in the U.S. Uh, if you apply the same logic, uh, if, it, if the, at the moment the, the meat market in the U.S. is about $270 billion, if you assume that over the next 10 years these plant-based alternatives and alternative meats like the lab meats could collectively uh, take 15%. That would be a $40 billion market 10 years from now. So it's a pretty big um, pie to be going yeah. after, which is pretty interesting. Very quickly, Alexa, while we have in the phone, how's Whole Foods working out for Jeff Bezos? How about those avocados? <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, we're going to it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. I mean, yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot going on globally with, uh, with tariffs and uh, yeah. I think, uh, yes, so so it, it's at the moment. Um, it, uh, the interesting thing I think about Amazon getting into grocery is the investors don't seem to require Amazon to make a profit, and so at the moment, you know, they can price their private label foods kind of wherever they yeah. like uh, for the long term, and that's going to put huge pressure on the legacy. Um, tired old packaged food names, um, you know, that, that, that's a big problem because they're competing with an internet company that, that frankly isn't held to the same standards financially as the old Kellogg's and, and Campbell's yeah. of the world. Uh, with an important January note on 365 in uh, Whole Foods and Amazon. Alexia Howard is Sanford Bernstein. Hey, you know, thank you so much, Alexia. Greatly appreciate it uh, uh, today. There's a pause here because uh, our, 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 our next guest uh, right now, we have to bring in, and she is the queen of mother puckers. Yes, you heard that right. That's appropriate for radio. One of the great secrets of the Bloomberg Combine is Scarlett Foo actually plays hockey full time and wanders into Bloomberg when she's not busy. You're playing north of New York, right? Yeah, I'm playing north of New York. I just played last night, in fact. You're um, playing hockey in June. Yes. Well, that's, that's the only sick. time I can get ice time. I don't, I don't okay. play between November and February because okay, that ice time is too valuable. Play? Oh, you know, I can float anywhere. So I can be a winger. I can be d defense. Sometimes I'm goalie. You know, Sometimes you're yeah. goalie. This must be a sight. Well, we have a special guest today, Scarlett. Why don't you mean, bring in the gentleman of esteem we've got with us? Yeah, I imagine a lot of our listeners are like our next guest. Gifted in a sport, passionate about a sport, <laughs> getting recruited to play the sport for an Ivy League school, tried to go pro, then went to business school, and then moved on to Wall Street. Except that this guy wrote a book about it in between. His name is Bill Keenan. No relation to Mike Keenan, right? Correct. Okay. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. But a hockey... A hockey phenom nonetheless. You played hockey at Harvard, and then you played uh, for Coach Donato. You got injured for a while. You decided to go pro. You went to Europe to go pro. Is that a well-trod path, Bill Keenan? Yeah, I, I would call it semi-pro or pro with, you know, there, there were elements of half the guys on my teams, um, you know, they were 
working construction during the day. So they'd come from, you know, roadside work to, to practice. So, um, but, you know, we did get paid. It was the one way to kind of keep the dream alive um, because it kind of got cut short in college. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's tough to let go. And the dream was to come though. back to the U.S. and play for the NHL eventually. Still, is, still, there's still part of me that thinks maybe if I grow the hair out again, maybe, you know, next season. That I'm a free goes. agent if there's anybody out there. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about the magic of your book, which is the first third of it, which is the sportsocracy and hockeyocracy of America. You and just to just interrupt for a second, Tom, the name of the book is Odd Man Rush, a Harvard kid's hockey odyssey from Central yeah. Park to somewhere in Sweden with stops along the way. Yeah, look for the movie Christmas 2020. There is a moment in your book where time stops. You're at collegiate. You're a fancy prep school kid, and you've got to explain to the counselor that you're going to Harvard to major in hockey. What was it like to combine the academics with the sportsocracy of the industry? Well, it, was t it was tough for my mom because she contributed a lot on the academics because this, mm -hmm. this was not going to happen without like a whole army of people helping. But, but really, like I mean, everyone was pretty supportive at, at growing up. I don't think it was... Right. It was really like anything that they had much, you know, whenever I'd say hockey, the first question, you know, growing up was like ice hockey. You know, it was it, it, it's not something that's that big here. So right now it's June. Everybody's mm -hmm. trying to get into Lawrenceville or Dartmouth or you went up to Adding Graves Combine, et cetera. Everybody's going to hockey camps right now in the sportsocracy. But there's so many kids that can't do what you did as well. How do the parents adapt to their kids are sort of kind of like good, but they're not good enough to go D1, et cetera. What do you recommend to those parents to make it fun? Just, just let the kid do what they want to do. They're not going to, I mean, this was my experience in, in banking after I stopped playing hockey. I just I couldn't compete because I didn't want to do it. So if the kid doesn't want to do it, just, just don't make them do it. Mm. And, and I think if, if you want to do it for fun, that's great, but don't harbor any hope that you're going to get to the top because it's not going to happen unless this is like you're obsessive and just i was obsessive and i didn't make it so there's mm -hmm. no guarantees you know you brought up banking so that's where i want to go to next because you came back from your pro career in europe you took some time you wrote a book you went to business school and then you got an internship at deutsche bank on wall street mm -hmm. and i just wonder how much did hockey come into the equation with your career on wall street a lot of guys uh, here played Div 1 hockey there on Wall Street. It comes up a lot. Was it a lubricant for that, for your career? I mean, I think it helped, and I had to kind of use that as a selling point. But, but you know, to be honest, I, I, and one of the reasons I, I wanted to write about banking, too, is a lot of the people that are athletes that go into sales and trading, that was my experience. I had no idea what, how that was different. I ended up in, in corporate finance mm -hmm. and that my deepest sympathies yeah thank you <laughs> um but but i think it helped kind of get in the door and you know i did during the recruiting you know i'd go play at 11 30 p.m at chelsea piers you know it was the last thing i wanted to do but you kind of gotta you know do this and, and try to get a job and right and mm -hmm. be into it but but uh yeah i mean it helps it ultimately it's not you know it, it didn't Really it wasn't. It wasn't the game changer when it came to being in a model at 2 a.m. The hockey wasn't helping. When you look at the hockey industry now, and it, you know, can take it over. Paul Sweeney's very up to speed on the basketball industry, uh, as well. It's an American fixation. You combined it with a first-class education, and the risk here is kids just do sports, sports, sports. I've seen that with, 
you know, any number of paths. How did you handle the load at collegiate or the load at Harvard grinding out three pair of soaking wet hockey skates uh, in your bag in the locker room? How'd you do the academics? Uh, I mean, you could, you, it's, it's, I mean, the, it, like people say, it's it, the hardest part is getting in. I mean, you, 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 it's doable. Like you have resources there. There's everyone, especially in hockey, all your teammates are, are going through the same thing. So it's yeah, not like, it was, that's I, I, I never, yeah. so there's, there's ways that, you know, my experience at Harvard is they give you every opportunity to succeed on and off the ice or whatever you want to do. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You don't have to, you know, commit to one thing at the expense of something else. You can do it. Like we can, it's, it's a great excuse to say, oh, I have a lot of work, but it's doable. Did you major in English or what, what did you No, study? no. I mean, I, I, government, I think, I mean, it was not, it was kind of like, I'm looking around, what's the, what's, what classes should I take? And it uh -huh. turned out that these classes lead to a government degree. Got it. You know, so. Okay, so you ended up writing a book about your hockey career. You also wrote a book, or you're writing a book about your Wall Street career. Um, how did you decide to take the path towards getting this book, your hockey book, produced into a movie? It, because it involves a lot of hockey royalty. There's names like Lemieux, Gretzky, um, involved Baldwin as well. I mean, these are people who are involved in the sport of hockey. Yeah, it was, it was pretty much when I knew that a after... During business business school, I, I did my banking internship, and I kind of had an inkling this was not going to be my career. Not your thing. No, and and I was right. Um, and I th there was a, one one of the one of the women that was in the internship with me made she she had heard that there was a book about hockey that I'd written, and she kind of made a, a comment like, "Oh, who's going to play in the movie?" And I remember thinking, "I mean, maybe that maybe I should do that because it, like, mm -hmm. what a great way to relive." All I was trying to do is relive. All right. What would you do to improve hockey right now? I'm bored stiff with the NHL game. Everybody skates like you Tom. skate. I'm bored stiff with the NHL game. The ice is too small, blah, blah, blah. I talked to Gary the players Batman. are too big. They shrunk the goalie pads. You sure? Do they need to shrink the goalie glove so they're not think, the blocker side? I, I like how it looks these days. You like the game? Yeah. You know what I would do is get more, show more European hockey in the U.S. Skill? Oh, I like that yeah, idea. There's just more. It's yeah. just a different game. There's, there's, it's more fun, bigger ice. Players are just as skilled. Um, Why do the Swedes produce so many great players? They, they, they do sacrifice a lot. Like they, you, you're 10 years old, you're gonna go to, they have like the way the structure is, you can kind of be on a path to the highest level in, in an organization and be like on your way at like 10, 11 years old. So they, they commit pretty early. As opposed to here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it'd be like saying, in Sweden, it'd be like saying their version of the New York Rangers, they have like a club team that you're 12 years old and you can be yeah. involved, like the soccer in, in Europe. I got like 45 more questions, but that's okay. all we got. Scarlett, thank you so much. Uh, Odd Man Rush. I actually read this years ago on my Kindle. Now mm. I have a hard copy of it. Oh, listen to you. Okay, very good. Bill Keenan with us here with an important book on hockey. Any of you parents on the edges or deep into the sportsocracy of America? It's, it's a That's must That's a total made-up word, by the way, read. sportsocracy. I, I lived it. It's the sportsocracy of America, and it is a must, must read from Bill Keenan on some of the pressures that the kids face uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.